joining us for another Friday of a virtual coffee break um, for the month of June. This will be our second to last for the month of June, and we'll be instituting a couple in the month of July, so stay tuned for that information. So for today's session, um, we're super excited. First of all, thank you so much to Charlie Upchurch and his team for introducing us to James Whitley, who's the Chief Operating Officer at Landmark Properties. For those of you who may not know who Landmark Properties are, and I'm sorry, James, if I steal your thunder, but they've been the um, nation's top contractor for student housing. They've been the nation's top developer for student housing. So we're super excited um, to have James with us to talk through some of the market trends that he's seeing in student housing. And again, thank you, Charlie, for making that connection with Dan and myself. So Dan, if you want to add anything to that. Uh, I think I did in that uh, early comments with James, but James, I spoke uh, probably five weeks ago, six weeks ago. I can't remember now. And I'll say the world continues to change, right? So we're very excited to hear uh, from a developer standpoint, an investor in the student housing asset class, what your outlook is, you know, from the potentially positive trends of, as you mentioned, de-densification to other trends, which is online learning might drive people to not send their kids away to school because it's, you know, I'm not getting the value. So there's a lot of, uh, it's been a very popular asset class in the last, I don't know, probably seven years, something like that with a lot of construction. You can talk about that, but I think we're really curious about, you know, your outlook for, uh, for student housing. Um, we'll just say in the near term, I don't know what, I don't want to make any long-term projections here, but let's look at the near term, what are the dynamics to consider? So uh, over to you. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to join you all today. This is an interesting uh, concept. When when my good friend Charlie Upchurch brought it to my attention, I, I'm going to just briefly, uh, for context, uh, Landmark is you know we're the largest, as she said, uh, largest developer by volume uh, five of the last six years, and the largest contractor of student housing in the country the last four. So. We're very active. We have about five billion uh, assets under management, and the last three years we're doing about a billion dollars a year of construction. So we've got our fingers in markets from Miami to Seattle to uh, Buffalo, New York, and, and out to Arizona and everywhere in between. So we're uh, expansive throughout the country, and you know it's interesting. Uh, you know, I started with Caldwell Banker with Charlie, my good friend in Athens, when I was in college, primarily to pay for bar dues, uh, well, bar tabs and fraternity dues. And uh, Charlie was kind enough to give me an opportunity and become a good friend and mentor throughout the year. So I'm, I'm appreciative of this opportunity to join you all. Uh, basically, not long after graduation, started Landmark and, um, you know, started right here in Athens. And What's interesting is in our 16-year history, the student housing sector has really evolved and matured as well, which is what historically was predominantly dominated by, you know, local investor kind of mom and pop operators and, and owners of real estate. And now it's a very institutionally recognized asset class. So multifamily has been recognized by institutional investors for decades throughout the country, particularly the major metros, you know, DCs and, and Dallas, Atlanta, et cetera. And now in the last really in the tenure of our time, five years predominantly, student housing is equally as respected and identified asset class for institutional investors from sovereign wealth funds of nations in the Middle East and 
in, in Europe and, uh, and throughout and Goldman Sachs and, and all of these uh, institutional investors that have identified that sector as a, a stable performing asset class and have come in. So, you know, it's been an interesting journey. And, you know, I'll say the last uh, four months, obviously, has been interesting in every real estate class. And so I guess to kind of touch on that, um, you know, the COVID impact, maybe backing up a step, one of the, the benefits of the student housing sector is it it is uh, very stable, as I indicated. In the recession of 08, our company doubled in size every year. Uh, obviously, most of you on the call remember 08, and, and uh, in every dynamic time, there are, you know, winners and losers to some degree. Uh, I think COVID will be no different, but uh, you know, single family in 08 was really pinched along with other real estate asset classes and student housing because it's stable. You know, in difficult economic times, student housing is a little bit more countercyclical. So when the economy is poor, uh, these upcoming graduates think maybe I'll stay for another football season or I'll get a master's degree or a law degree. And you actually see upward pressure on enrollment growth, which benefits our sector. And that happened in, in the 08 recession. And you know, looking now at the, the environment we're facing with COVID, um, you know, in the eye of the storm, so when COVID really hit, uh, I guess mid-March, when it started to become what it, what it became, uh, we were all in my sector very nervous about what where April rent's going to look like. So we collected our March rents before the wave really hit. And when April came, we were all holding our breath because our contracts, the way student housing works, they basically run, you know, fall to fall. And we were locked into those current contracts, but we didn't know how they were going to perform the collections. And so uh, I was thrilled to see that in the eye of the storm, April, May, and, and now June, the average collections across our industry were north of 93%. And then in our organization specifically, uh, we're trending closer to 97%, which is uh, far beyond what I would have expected. I mean, I, if I were gonna be a, a Vegas guy setting a line, I would have thought we'd have been around 89%, but trending at 97 was has been phenomenal. And then for us specifically, that's in large part because we have higher end real estate and thus the guarantors for that tend to be a little more fluent. Um, our average guarantors makes $262,000 a year. But nevertheless, um, in the eye of the storm, our company specifically in the sector in general really has weathered collections well. And what I told Dan when he and I spoke, um, I guess a month or so ago, my computer's timing out here, so I'm getting blank screen so I can get that live again, move the mouse. What I told Dan is if the world goes back to some semblance of normal, and in the fall, these institutions uh, come back to some kind of on-campus present, then the student housing industry is really going to come out looking very strong. You know, to have weathered the eye of the storm with collections as an industry around 95%, and then, you know, fall classes beginning, what we're seeing the last five weeks um, our leasing velocity has snapped back and is actually exceeding uh, the same week year over year. So during April and May, we obviously lagged. The leasing velocity slowed week year over year, and everybody was kind of holding their breath. 
waiting to see what was going to happen with this crisis. And now that these schools or when they started announcing, and some schools it's varied, but some started announcing as early as um, back in May, we're seeing that velocity like a rubber band snap back and we're now exceeding year over year. So I think the trend line is that we're going to end up at or near historical occupancies for this coming fall. And, um, and that's going to pay, you know, long-term dividends for the sector. I think, you know, when you look out across the landscape of real estate and you see, okay, obviously hospitality is taking a hit. Um, other sectors, I'm not going to call them all out individually. You guys are in a lot of these sectors, I'm sure, are going to take a hit in this crisis. And I think student housing will, again, demonstrate resiliency, which will make it all the more attractive from, for institutional investors. Um, so that's kind of the high uh, points of, of how I perceive the COVID impact. Um, you know, I think for our organization, we were on track to have a banner year. You know, at the start of this year, it looked like we were going to have upwards as many 12 starts, which is going to be about $1.4 billion of construction starts happening this year. I think we had four that hit before the COVID hit. And then everything else just froze up. I mean, banks froze, equity froze. Uh, we're now seeing that start to fall, which is very encouraging for me. And I don't think we're going to snap back and have all 12 starts that we were anticipating. But I wouldn't be surprised if we were kind of the seven to eight start range. Um, most of the deals that don't end up starting in this calendar year, I think, will end up happening. They'll just get pushed because the way our industry works, we have a hard deadline to have to have our construction complete ahead of the fall classes starting. And if you get behind the eight ball there, you've really got to push it an entire cycle. You can't just, like conventional multifamily, maybe push it a month or two. Uh, we don't have that luxury. So we'll have a number of those, those deals that I think will kick to 21 starts. Um, but ultimately, I, you know, that's a pretty favorable outlook considering all that, that uh, we as a country uh, have endured in, in the COVID crisis. So um, I don't, you know, obviously this is, I was described and described this as more conversational, uh, an opportunity just to, to discuss and share. So those are kind of high level thoughts and, you know, I'm happy to answer any questions that anybody might have. Uh, I was asking if the um, performance is uniform across your markets, and this is, and here's uh, why I'm asking. So I think I told you I have my our younger child graduated from Purdue uh, a year ago, and I know Tim Harrington's on the call in Champaign. So both these schools in the Midwest, you know, heavy engineering, computer science. I think it's upwards to like a third of the students are foreign students, something like that. I don't, I may not be exactly correct there, and I know I recall those foreign students are pretty big consumers of of third-party student housing, uh, you know, particularly maybe it's because it's, you know, safe and secure and predictable. I don't know what the reasons, but I was curious if, um, you know, there is, there has been a trend of fewer foreign students coming. I know the Chancellor of Purdue was telling uh, parents and alumni that, you know, they're trying to be less dependent on that full income, <laughs> you know, for different reasons, but just curious. So across your portfolio, have you seen any variation from schools that are maybe more heavily dependent on international attendance versus uh, domestic? That's a good question, Dan. I'll say kind of high level, uh, student housing, every market is very unique. 
And for our our investment thesis, you know, obviously there are uh, the universities of uh, Georgia right next door as I look out my window, and then they're down to, you know, Valdosta State. There's a whole litany of tiers of institutions within each of our states. And so our thesis has always been that we're going to focus on top-tier institutions that have generally greater than 20,000 students because our belief is that those tend to be a little more insulated. So as I look to our portfolio, ours may not – I mean, there are other companies that, that focus on Tier 2 and 3 schools in the Midwest and wherever that, that might have a different uh, experience, but I'll just – I'll speak to ours. Um, the reason we focus on these top-tier schools is because they all have ratios – of acceptance. So, and I don't know the exact data, but I'm just going to pick some numbers. There may be 80,000 people a year that apply to the University of Georgia. That's probably high. So maybe it's call it 30,000 people. Now they're only going to accept about 5,000 freshmen every year. So there's a ratio of acceptance to applicants. And it is typically the norm at these major institutions, the universities of, or the Penn State's, uh, that the ratio of acceptance is quite low relative to applicants. And the reason we focus on that is because in the event of a COVID crisis or some kind of crisis where some students may choose to stay home or, you know, take a semester off or a year off or, or, or go in an alternate direction, or in the case of, uh, you know, some of the schools, Champaign does have a high international population, not as high as the 20%, but it's uh, I think it's low or high single digits, but nevertheless, if just say say it's 10% Champagne, if all of a sudden 10% of their incoming Chinese students aren't going to be there, they have enough demand that they can just up that percentage of acceptance and end up with at or the same population of students. So we're seeing that throughout the country is that these tier one schools, many of them are turning, opening the throttle a little bit or opening the spigot. And I actually spoke to a good friend of mine who's the VP of Student Affairs at the University of Georgia. His concern is that this year's freshman class may be larger than ever because there might have been, in some cases, an overreaction, and then they're opening the spigot too much, thinking, okay, the applica applications may be down, so rather than 4%, we're going to accept 6 And it might end up being a bulge uh, in student freshman student populations at a lot of these institutions. So that is one of the reasons that we do like the tier one schools, you know, um, Armstrong Atlantic, which is a, a smaller tier University of Georgia school, it's not going to have the same uh, benefit. Their their demand is not as great as the larger tier one institutions. So, specifically regarding the the international population, I think it will be down this year. Although I say that, I think that that's going to be a temporary effect while we weather this COVID, the initial effects because. The what benefit we have in our country is our sec higher education institutions are second to none in the world. I mean, comprehensively, we in the United States have the, you know, the best uh, higher education institutions. And so it, we may have an off year from an international standpoint this year, but I do think that will rebound in coming years. And in that gap, the, ins the institutions are really going to fill it by throttling their acceptance rates. So I don't, I don't anticipate we're going to see a um, any meaningful dip in population at any of these institutions where our assets are located. So I feel like we're fairly well insulated there. Interesting. I didn't think about the 
throttling up of domestic students to offset the international, maybe from the university, that's a headcount that makes sense. It may mean different income for the university because domestic students pay a different ratio. Um, just one other question, it's a little bit unrelated, but uh, still COVID related. I, you know, aside from you know being very uh, diligent about cleanliness and things like that, which I'm sure your property management either division or outsource companies are doing for you. Are you looking at any design changes in your to be constructed properties in response to COVID um, that, you know, maybe you wouldn't either embracing of technology, like, you know, using the elevator with your phone and things like that, or um, common areas, anything like that, that you really, maybe you're going to uh, incorporate now going forward that you didn't uh, maybe hadn't planned on, or at least uh, plan to move ahead on in the past. That's an interesting question. So from a, a structural standpoint, not really, I would say, because if anything that we make in terms of a design change and structural won't manifest itself for two years if it's an urban right. deal. If we started today, it's two-year build, and then even our lower-density cottage product, still a year time frame. But to your technology point, we are fortunate because we were already fairly progressive with our technology. Okay. Most of our doors... Uh, are accessible and amenity spaces are accessible via key fob system, which one of the benefits of that program is it allows tracking. So if I have my key fob and I live at the Mark where I'm in the building now, we have an office on the grade level of uh, 900 students above. My key gets me in the door of my unit. It gets me in my bedroom specifically, and it also gets me into the gym and to the pool. And we have the ability to go and track that. So one of the interesting effects, this will dovetail into your earlier question, uh, about de-densification on campus. When that started to come out, at, you know, they started announcing in the press, institutions across the country, we need to de-densify our company, as well as all of our competitors, started immediately calling these schools saying, you know, we're here to help. Uh, the effect was they, in an already busy world where they're drinking out of a fire uh, hose, were then inundated with calls from private uh, providers such as us trying to, to help, right? So we actually led our company along with uh, three other industry peers, an effort we call the Bridge Project, which is to come together as an off-campus industry, set some basic standards which would allow us to help the universities. Number one, it's going to cut down on everybody calling them. We're instead going to provide data to these companies or to these institutions through a, a portal about our, our occupancy and allow them to uh, engage us in a short list kind of fashion. But one of the key differentiators was for all of us that have newer product that have the, the key fob tracking technology, uh, it allows us to better contact trace or offer them, the institution, some way of helping out with transparency. So if I am a resident in this building and I end up with COVID, uh, that we can actually go in and see, okay, did James go to the gym? And by the way, who else was in the gym at the same time? Wow. So that technology, uh, we already had that deployed in most of our assets. We are, to answer your question directly, looking at what it's going to cost to deploy it fully across the portfolio because those are kind of uh, components that I do think help in this new COVID environment when you're trying to limit. And all that's another thing. You know, we can – throttle our gym so that when, I don't know, 20 people are in there, it won't let the 21st person in there. So that it kind of, that helps as a way of uh, keeping the amenity spaces at a lower density. Now that doesn't stop someone from going and opening the door for their friend. It's not uh, foolproof, but 
these are little uh, tools that we have in our arsenal to help out. Interesting. Those are great, uh, great, uh, great. Good that you're ahead of the curve, I guess. That's a good thing. And um, I like that contract tracing. Again, another thing I hadn't thought about, but that is kind of a, a built-in contract tracing that uh, is necessary in the age of COVID. So, Christina, I will stop talking and let you uh, share some of the questions on the chat. Yeah, absolutely. So we have some, um, we have several really great questions that came in. The first one's from Alina out in San Diego. How is student housing capitalized and how has COVID affected how it's capitalized? That's interesting. So uh, obviously every company is capitalized differently. Um, for, you know, in our company, we started out uh, very small, just doing almost uh, what we call kitty condo. So we were self-funded. We'd build a development, sell them to investors, manage them, roll the capital into the next deal. And at one point, uh, we started growing too much. That didn't work. So we went to institutional equity. That case, it was a group out of Chicago, Harrison Street, which is a PE group. Uh, great partner for many years. We're still partnering with them on some deals. Uh, we've now gone, I mean, Goldman's a partner, um, you know, Carlisle. We have a lot of institutional equity. We have a, a sovereign group out of the Middle East. So what you're seeing now, ours, our capitalization is more sophisticated than most of our our, our competitors, which is actually a competitive advantage for us. We have lower cost of capital than some of our, our comps. But, you know, anywhere from, you know, mom and pops, just local investors passing the hat country club money capitalizes some of our competitors. Um, you know, private equity does in many cases. Uh, but we are, again, seeing big time institutional investors coming in. But those groups really want to see uh, an institutional level platform uh, and that's both from how they're being managed by an institutional management company uh, to a sophisticated, you know, obviously reporting. Or you got, there's a lot of detail that goes into that. Won't get too nuanced, but uh, student housing is, is again, it's it is arrived fully and is perceived as institutional grade investment. So. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. I, that, we could have a whole hour on that. I'm going to skip around because I want to keep in tune with kind of the topic and how we dwindle down here. So how are, um, how are existing or new costs associated with technology and services, building access control, contact tracing recovered? Well, that's a good question. You know, for new developments, we're kind of baking that into the cake on the front end. You know, I mentioned that, uh, I think one of the reasons we are so high in our collections during April, May, and June is because our average, we have parental guarantors, so let me back up a step. When a student signs the lease, and they do, 96% or better of the time, it's the parent, Dan there, who is guaranteeing that lease for his daughter in Temple. Um, and so we do a criminal on his, Dan's daughter, but we do a credit on Dan. Uh, so, Dan, love to have you as a customer at any point. But uh, what we see, and then we, we hit the COVID crisis, we never actually run that data point, but we said, what is our across-the-board parental guarantor? So the, our average income for parental guarantors is $262,000. Um, that's because we have predominantly top-of-market rents and new, nice, high-technology uh, uh, incorporated buildings. And so all of that for us for the most part, is baked into the cake when we do a development deal. I mean, obviously the cost of construction has 
ramped up, I'm sure many of you know, over the last five years pretty substantially. Um, makes deals tough to pencil. And I'm almost, I am optimistic that with this COVID crisis, construction costs may come down a little bit and maybe land owners would get a little bit more reasonable in their expectations for sale price. But um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of that's just baked into the cake. Now for the assets that, uh, that don't have that technology deployed, you know, we're going to just have to look at our, our, our capital investment budgets for those sites. I mean, we, we bank dollars for capital improvement. Some sites will have those dollars banked, others won't, and it's just a business decision in whether or not deploying that technology, you're going to get a return or you're going to be able to push your rent slightly if you can offer, uh, you know, a, a safer type environment. You know, it's just a business decision. Great. And I know um, Charlie actually has a question for you. And let me, and you are unmuted, Charlie. All right. Thank you. Hey, James. Good morning. Morning, uh, glad you're here. Uh, I'm enjoying this. This is great information. Uh, I'm going to ask you this question because I know you're going to be extremely familiar with it here in the Athens area. But one of the things that we're facing is the, uh, the defunding in the Athens market. They're talking about defunding the police department, you know, and in, in, in our market specifically, they're talking about defunding the police department by half. Um, and I know that they're having that problem in Atlanta and that y'all have uh, 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 properties in Atlanta as well. As far as this defunding movement of the of the police departments, I mean, how many communities are y'all seeing that in, or are y'all anticipating uh, any kind of a uh, backlash from that? That's an interesting question. I'm going to try to not get too political here. I there are off the top of my head at least five or six of the markets that we're in: Berkeley, uh, Atlanta. You mentioned Athens. You mentioned and a number of others, maybe more that I'm specifically familiar with. There's probably another dozen that I'm unaware of that there is some movement to that effect. I don't love it. Uh, I think I think we can certainly invest in, in mental wellness and I think we should. I am leery and, and have some apprehension about that component because look, as an off-campus housing provider to young people, the safety and well-being of our customers is paramount. I mean, when, in fact, many parents choose to allow their children to live in our communities because they know that, you know, it's key fob access to get into the communities. They know that, you know, it's key fob access. It's, it, it, you know, in the old school days, old school keys, you could go to Lowe's and make 10 copies and pass them out to all your friends. And if you didn't turn the units properly, the, the preceding residents, you know, if you didn't roll your locks, could still have keys into to these bedrooms and into these units. So uh, that is a, a selling feature for our organization, that the, the level of security, our cameras and, and infrastructure there. So safety is a huge concern, and, and I, you know, I just hope that these communities will be smart and, and not knee-jerk react with a lot of the, the goings-on right now. I think uh, we can invest more mental health, but I don't think we – defund your police infrastructure by 50% personally. But, bad, bad. but let me, uh, kind of a follow-up though, I mean, one of our state representatives has said that, that, you know, parents are calling him saying that, that, you know, they don't know if they're gonna send their kids to the University of Georgia because of the unrest. Are you seeing that? Are people saying, you know, that, uh, are y'all concerned about your vacancies because possibly, you know, just that, that having some kind of an effect on it? I, I think that there can be an effect there. 
if all of that change comes to pass. But I don't think that it's going to happen immediately. And I almost go back to the earlier point about I, the University of Georgia, which is here in our backyard. It is always going to be here in some form. And even online learning, you know, I mean, they, we always say online learning is a threat to our industry. Well, maybe it is at some of the lower tier schools, Armstrong Atlantic, and I hate to keep picking on them, might not survive in the world that goes more online. Because if I'm a student trying to find a real, you know, inexpensive opportunity to get a college degree and I'm considering Armstrong Atlantic, I might just as well consider an online degree. But the students that attend the major institutions, Penn State, you know, University of Georgia, all of these tier one schools come for the comprehensive college experience. It is the education, of course. And I think you're going to see even the University of Georgia, these major institutions are still going to go to more online opportunities. I mean, they're, they've started that trend. That trend's going to continue. But there will always be a place for that in-present, that in-person experience, for being in that community and getting the well-rounded college experience. And so your point, I, I think, does create, if we defund our law enforcement institutions in these college towns, does it, do I think it'll make it less safe? I do. I hope that that doesn't happen. I certainly hope that it doesn't happen as a knee-jerk, quick response, and I don't think they're going to yank the rug out of these uh, police uh, institutions just now. I think if it happens, it's going to be kind of slow. It's going to be um, hopefully thoughtful in a way that doesn't ramp up crime in these communities that, 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 that keeps students away. I think some may. I mean, everybody has different risk tolerances, and uh, but kind of big picture, these major institutions, they have stood the test of time, and I think that they will continue to stand the test of time. And I, I'm just a glass half full sort of guy. I believe that the community is going to make responsible decisions to keep their communities safe, you know, in the long run. Thank you. So we have um, several really great questions and multiple questions within statements. So I'm going to break it down so we remain on topic and kind of see how we go in circular motion. So based on that, Mike in Florida wants to know, besides being a college town, how do you decide to move into a market or an expand an existing market? So we have a pretty complicated model with a lot of different inputs. And that model has been built over 16 years and is evolving every day. Um, you know, we look at, you know, the typical fundamentals, supply, demand, you know, I mean, uh, not every college market is the same. Some are oversupplied. Two years ago, Texas A&M was one of the most oversupplied markets in the country. And we, unfortunately, were halfway into two deals. And those deals struggled the first year or two. But what I've seen, fortunately, out there, they've continued to ramp their enrollment demand is there in Texas and the market has healed itself. Um, you know, so the markets, I'm, I'm continually surprised by how quickly they can heal themselves. Tallahassee 10 years ago was an overbuilt market, then it snapped back. Um, so we're always looking at supply demand. We're looking at those acceptance rates I mentioned earlier. What kind of plans do the university have regarding their on-campus housing? Most universities on average house only about 20% of their students the average age of that housing stock across the country is 50 years old. So 
when you're seeing universities come in and, and build new dorms, oftentimes they're taking old dorms offline. We have a host of them here in the University of Georgia, which are antiquated, and or they're reconfiguring them in a way that actually means fewer students in those units. I think that trend will continue in the COVID world. Um, so there's a lot of uh, factors that go into it. Now, one high-level trend I'll share, I mentioned earlier construction costs have gone up, and they have, I mean, just continued to ramp. We have seen that it is more difficult to make deals in markets like Athens, Auburn, traditional college towns, you know, Texas State, and are harder to pencil now because construction costs have gone so high. What we had prior to COVID seen is a trend where we're having to go to more urban markets. We're building a pair of 22-story towers in Seattle. We're building, uh, well, we're building our second tower in Midtown Atlanta at Georgia Tech. We're building at the U in Miami. We're building in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And so all of that is, they're high, you know, higher density, taller buildings in more urban markets where the rents are super high. It's the, it's been, so our deals are getting, having to get bigger and markets, more urban markets with higher rents in order to justify the cost of new construction. That has been a trend. I hope with COVID, construction costs will come down enough to arrest that trend and we can continue to do business in, in many of the college markets. But that has been a kind of an interesting trend. Great. So building upon that, Chase down in Lubbock, Texas area, he's worked with Landmark and knowing the work that they've done and the deals that they've done, do you anticipate the development strategy changing? More importantly, you capitalize on pedestrian to campus sites, um, also fair share of cottage style within a mile range from campus. So what type of sites will you be looking for now versus um, before COVID? And are you pursuing the best of the best? And do you see the distribution disposition cap rate change? Okay, so nuanced question, but I'll, I'll kind of highlight it. So we have two concepts. We have a cottage, lower density concept, where we need 15-ish or more acres. And then we have an urban concept that we can, we can do it on a fraction of an acre. Um, we have seen, we started off doing only the low density cottage. And I always thought, frankly, that we would run out of sites because how many 15 plus acre sites are there within a mile radius to major institutions? Those are, that's a pretty limited commodity. Um, look, we love looking sites, kind of full stop. You know, I don't know what the best method to connect with anybody that might be on the call that's in a market with a site, but um, we're always looking. You know, I mean, we may look at a thousand sites a year to, to do 10 deals. Uh, you're, I'm sure, familiar with that. But, um, you know, we like markets with high barriers to entry. One of our competitive advantages, I mentioned, we have low cost of capital and, and we're pretty creative on getting entitlements done. So sometimes we're willing to make, uh, you know, Corvallis, Oregon, for example, uh, very meaningful bets on sites and difficult entitlement markets that, uh, that if you can get it done, you know, obviously your assets are, are more valuable. Uh, so high barriers to entry, we, we do like that. Um, I don't remember the exact question, but all that, uh, <laughs> all the disconnect. I lost my train of thought. I just want to make sure that, that okay. the crew knew we were looking for sites. All right. Great. Um, and uh, there's some in the chat that reached out and said that they have um, sites 
near them. So what we'll do is we'll make sure, James, to get your email address um, to the group so they can email you with any additional questions or site inquiries. There's a couple of other questions. If you feel comfortable enough, we can hear you perfectly. We can ask those questions um, to close us out. Otherwise, we can send it to you separately and we can make sure those questions are answered to the group. I have a, a 12.30 hard stop, so I can yeah do a few more minutes here if that works. Yeah, so the one question um, that we thought was a really good question was from Eric. How are you allocating for rideshare, Uber, and parking spaces? It's a good question. You know, unfortunately, the sites that are complete, going back and, and retroing those are a little more complicated, but we are looking at doing that at a number of sites for future developments. We are pre-planning for a kind of a ride share type of zone or, or a, uh, a place, a space for ride share to, to come and do what they do. So that, that's a great question. We're absolutely considering that. That, that and uh, packaging rooms have been a, a major topic for design. As you guys all know, people order so much online now. Um, the package rooms we designed three years ago are now inadequate for the volume of packages we're getting, so. Great, and then another question to that from Eric was, what are some new amenities that you're starting to see um, being requested by campuses or by students or things that may be popping up? So the number one amenity, this is not gonna surprise you, particularly given COVID, is just really fast internet and i mean that is now actually considered an amenity and we're putting you know gig or more pipes into our properties now because of the amount of streaming both for classes and of course netflix and disney plus and all of these uh streaming services so you know when we do our uh our customer uh you know we do a lot of surveys right and uh, a lot of that is centered around customer service, but also design features and what we can do to improve. A lot of the feedback is always faster than it. That's the number one priority. Uh, you know, fitness centers are always right there, one or two. Uh, so we're getting creative in terms of space because of construction costs. We've had to condense space in a lot of markets. And so what, how can you take uh, a certain space and make it as, multifunctional and as effective as it can be both for fitness or just general multifunction space, whether it's gaming space or, or recreational space that can also easily convert to study space during exam time. So um, there are a lot of, a lot of, you know, five years ago, they called it the arms race for amenities. And at that time it was, bigger, bigger pools, bigger, this bigger, everything. And then in the last five years, as construction costs have ramped, all of the developers are thinking, how do we do more with less? Um, and so some of that is also the technology, you know, um, whether you have fully automated units where you can control your, your thermostats from your phone and, and things of that nature. So there's some technology amenities that are becoming, uh, more prevalent. Great. And one final question to close us out. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and Landmark Properties. So the question was, how many units do you personally own? How many projects? How many projects have you developed yourself versus those that you've bought? So give us um, a little more depth to what Landmark Properties are in your own interest in student housing. 
Yeah, so our portfolio is about 36,000 beds. Two-thirds of that we own. Uh, so we're about $5 billion of assets under management, I mentioned, to begin with. So we do third-party as well. So a third of the beds we manage are owned by other developers or ownership groups that we simply are just a manager for. Um, you know, we're, as I said, we're continuing to grow up, you know, if we're, it wouldn't surprise me if we own, you know, 10 billion of, of real, you know, AUM in the next four, four years or so. Um, we were aggressive. Now we've got a team that is built out both from, a construction standpoint, development standpoint, and an ops standpoint to to deliver, you know, anywhere from five to ten deals a year. Um, so that is, uh, I, I don't see that changing. Now, I don't have a crystal ball, and we'll see the ultimate impact of the COVID crisis. But as I, where we, you know, come full circle, I fully expect student housing to come out shining and for that to attract even more uh, equity to the space and you know most sophisticated or all sophisticated equity uh, looks for organizations companies with a track record and um, and I think we'll benefit from that as well great well, thank you so much. I know we went way over time um, and thank you all for hanging with us and talking through some of what we're seeing in student housing. Thank you again, Charlie, for introducing us to James. Um, and for those of you who are on the session and want to reach out to James, his email is simple, james at landmarkproperties.com. Um, so James, thank you so much for joining us and providing your insights of where you see student housing to go, where it currently is, um, and all the great nuances to the questions that were asked. So thank you so much for joining us today.